Don't look for what life is, look for what it does. This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Lee Cronin and his colleagues call it assembly theory. It may be able to recognize life as we know it and as we don't. He'll join me from his lab at the University of Glasgow to explain. And we'll look to the stars when Bruce Betts arrives for this week's What's Up. Well, one star anyway, but it's a doozy. Here's a sample of the Planetary Society's weekly newsletter. You can see the downlink at planetary.org downlink, but you can also subscribe for free. Really, nothing. Happy Anniversary Light Sale 2. As you heard from Bruce last week, our little solar sail completed its second year in Earth orbit on June 25th. Check out the latest images of Earth and get the current status at planetary.org slash lightsail. Squids in space! Cute little leopard-skinned baby squids. They're now living on the International Space Station because human and squid immune systems have a lot in common. Who knew, right? What's 21 years old has revolutionized our view of the universe and is showing its age. Engineers are still trying to figure out what's wrong with the Hubble Space Telescope. Be sure to hear next week's plan, Rad, when I'll visit the follow-on to Hubble, the James Webb Space Telescope. And a hulking big comet has been discovered as a side benefit of the Dark Energy Survey. 2014 UN-271 could be 200 kilometers wide. Sadly, it won't get closer to the Sun than Saturn's orbit, but maybe we'll still get a show in a few years. You know those two big questions Bill Nye likes to ask? Where do we come from and are we alone? Answers to both may require a reliable way to detect the presence or past presence of life. Some of the greatest scientists I know are on this quest. Lee Cronin, his colleagues at the University of Glasgow, and his collaborators at Arizona State University and the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center have concentrated on something all life as we know it does. It builds big molecules. Their work has just been published as assembly theory. Lee and I talked a few days ago. I am always on the lookout for great stories that are appropriate for planetary radio. Some of them are obvious, you know, updates from spacecraft around the solar system and so on. This one was less obvious, although I have to say it immediately grabbed my attention. And the more I have learned about assembly theory, the more excited I have become. So uh, congratulations on this on this really great work. Let's start with this. I think it has been maybe hundreds, possibly even thousands of years that humans have been attempting to come up with an acceptable universal definition for life. It really has, in all that time, has never been terribly successful, has it? No, I think that's one of the most ironic things about it. It was always in plain sight, but never really tangible because people were arguing about their own biases. And talking about what, in a way, what life is rather than what life does, which seems to be the approach that that you and your collaborators have taken. Yeah. So I've always been interested in complexity theory since I was a, a child in programming and so on. But in the chemistry lab, when we make molecules, we have to put in a lot of information to make drugs and whatnot. And I 
got thinking many years ago about how big does my molecule need to be before it becomes impossible for it to be created by a non-living system? And it turns out not very. And that was really the train of thought that we went through. We realized not only do we have a new approach, it's actually a new theory about how information in the universe works. Which is a quite profound capability or a perception, I guess, is a better way to put it. And you have called this assembly theory. Give us an idea of what assembly theory is all about. And of course, we will also put up links to uh, the press releases about the story, but also to the original paper in the May 24 Nature Communications. And I I do highly recommend that people read both the abstract and the introduction uh, uh, to the paper. But, But please give us a thumbnail description. Yeah, so put simply, what assembly theory does, it allows you to take a given object um, that you can find, and for the first thing is you need to be able to find many identical copies of this object, so you can then break them. And when you break them, you break them gently, and you break them into lots of different parts, and then you say, okay, how can I then reassemble this object with the minimum number of steps? This is really assembly theory in a nutshell. So the, the, the larger the number of steps you need, and this must be the shortest path in theory, the more unlikely the object could have made itself. It's a bit like the blind watchmaker argument or automobile argument turned on its head. And don't worry, well, I mean, you shouldn't worry. It's not a, it's not a creationist argument. We're going to talk about how evolution is able to shape the trajectory that allows these objects to form. But at its core, assembly theory tells you the probability of the object could form without um, some informational process, be it a designer or evolution. And you express this probability as the MA number, the molecular assembly index? Correct. Now, this is actually underlying a much deeper theory that I'm working on with collaborators right now on on what's called assembly information theory or causal assembly theory. But for molecules, because if we're going to go and look for aliens in the solar system, molecules are good enough, okay? And we simply give the the number of steps you need, the MA index. And one of the nice things about this theory, I should say, is that I invented the theory from an experiment I knew already worked which is why this is a bit of a slam dunk, because I didn't have to have a philosophical argument with people about what life could be. I could say, here's my theory, here's the equation, here's the experiment, shall we go see if the experiment fits the theory? I was struck when you said a few moments ago that this solution has been right in front of our faces, in front of our eyes, perhaps for many, many years, uh, because I had kind of the same impression. Why do you think has has nobody quite taken this approach in the past? Um, I don't know. I guess, so I think chemists, um, and I'm a chemist, are very good at making molecules and they're very biased and they accept and they think that complex molecules can arise. In fact, chemists kind of have two contradictory kind of views. They are the first to tell you how hard it is to make a new drug, new molecule, how much work they need to do. And then when you show them a complex molecule, they'll turn around and say, oh, that can happen by chance. And I think NASA and people working in astrobiology and people thinking about complexity got this realized correctly that you can't just get information for free, but how can we encapsulate it? 
So for me, a molecule is an information ship in a bottle. If mm. you find a complex molecule, you haven't found the alien, but you've found evidence the alien made the thing. And that is so exciting because it captures that information. Another extremely exciting uh, factor uh, about this, this new theory is that it should work. There's no reason why it wouldn't work, not just for life as we know it, but for, as we frequently say on this show, life as we don't know it. So forgive me for putting it this way, but the problem in the past has been that we, we don't know what we don't know about life as we don't know it. Yeah, absolutely right. And this is one of the reasons why I had so many arguments for people at NASA when I was developing this, that, that we, we fell into, the people that argued with me about this fell into roughly three camps. They still do. First camp, which used to be the biggest camp, saying it's ludicrous. You don't know enough mathematics. You don't know enough chemistry. You don't know enough computer science. It's too hard to use complexity theory because everything is complicated. And then there's, so it's loose ludicrous. The second group of people just opposed it because they wanted to go and look for amino acids or RNA or DNA, their own little pet marker, chirality, all of which are valid for life on Earth. And now we're getting into the point where everyone said, oh, yeah, it's obvious. So I, I think that, that it's obvious that this works. And I'm really excited because they're the three stages of a new idea coming to life. <laughs> Ridicule, suppression, and of course. And I think <laughs> so, and so that's kind of nice because I'm not saying we shouldn't go and look for amino acids on Titan or chirality on Mars. I'm just saying what I'm proposing will find life forms that you weren't expecting and also it captures life as we know it. So why would you use a life form detector that is only Earth-centric when we are going to other planets? And I think that that is, that is then really the slam dunk. We need to get this on all the missions. Have you come to the point where you may have found, or if you haven't found it yet, do you think that there is a threshold of complexity, a line above which something can be said to be the product of biology? And if it falls below that, probably not. Maybe, but I'm going to hesitate. I think it's always going to be a scale because uh, we don't know the conditions of the planet that we're going to. But I would say on Earth, it's very, very nice. You can fingerprint life on Earth, and it seems to be there is a threshold by which it's very unlikely you're going to find identical copies of a molecule by a random process uh, on Earth over, I don't know, say 15 steps. Whereas on Titan, it may be the, the, the density of the atmosphere or the way that chemistry is going on might push that out a bit further. But the thing is, when people argue about the threshold, just say, look, we can argue about a simple to complex molecule, but is a Tesla complex enough? Is an iPhone complex enough? Is a piece of sand simple enough? And what I do is I get people to put, take their line, and the fact we can draw a line between this, you know, between the simple and the complex is the first point. But the beautiful point is the same line that we're using to look for non-life to life also goes to intelligence and techno-signatures. It's mm. one continuum. Which brings us right back to information theory. So I can't wait to see your uh, the expansion from special assembly theory to general assembly theory, if you'll, <laughs> if you'll yeah, pardon the reference. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, that's exactly what's happening because I don't. information does not exist in a universe without life. It's a really important thing to say because life needs to generate context for itself. But causation does exist because we had to get to life. And so what assembly theory actually says is 
how much causation can we accumulate before we come to life? Now, the reason I hesitate about your comment about the threshold is this, is that I don't think there's a eureka moment where a planet makes a transition from dead to living. I think there is an accretion of the ability to process causal structures and turn them into information. So what happens is you have random chemistry doing nothing very much, but then there's a bubble that gets trapped, if you like. And when that bubble that gets trapped is able to act on other bubbles being formed later, causally, then suddenly you have life or you have the trajectory that gives rise to life. And I think it's not hard and fast. It's like the invention of flight. You know, the flying squirrels, they don't flap their wings, you know, they were, or they're a dead end for flight or the very first objects that went into the air is really thinking about that evolutionary continuum. But yes, when you go to a planet, you should be able to look at the planet and say, dead or alive, and where's the threshold? And that's really exciting. Absolutely fascinating. I hope that listeners are beginning to understand why, why I found this so exciting when I discovered it. Let me throw an example at you, which is one of your own examples. Uh, a molecule on Earth, an Earth-bound uh, molecule, one that I recognized, thank goodness, not because of personal experience, but it's called Taxol, uh, that natural plant-based chemotherapy drug. It's a very complex molecule. You use it as an example. How likely is it that Taxol would be created in any abundance without being created by a living organism? I mean, I, I suppose you might find a molecule here or there just by, by chance, right? Yeah, yeah. So let's do the let's do the math. So the chance of finding taxol in any abundance is zero. I know that statistical mechanicists would say, "Oh no, can we not say it's like very, very, very improbable?" But sure, the improbability would require um, a universe larger than our universe by a factor of ten or twenty. So let me say, so taxol has a number of atoms in it. So it's about sixty-two atoms, right? Or sixty-three atoms. I forget a carbon atoms. There's some hydrogen atoms. Don't count those because they just add on. So let's say there's little causal power with those. If you were to take those 63, 64 atoms and mix them in a bucket and then pull out molecules of taxol, to do that would be would require, and let's just say now we didn't just do it in one bucket, we filled the entire universe with buckets. You would not be able to fill the known universe with enough buckets to even pull out one molecule. So there are more possible configurations of the atoms in taxol than there are atoms in the universe. Hmm. So you go, oh gosh, okay, that's, that's a downer. So that can't even happen <laughs> randomly. So now I've found a milligram of taxol, which is several million molecules. So it's not only if you found a one in a universe molecule, you've found a million of them. And that then allows, that gets the alarm bells really ringing. And you can then start to say, well, of course, Taxol didn't get built in a flash, did it? It was the accretion of information step by step. Taxol is evidence of 4 billion years of coin flipping in evolution on Earth. And isn't that beautiful? Just in one molecule, there's evidence that process went on, and it's all there. That is sublimely beautiful. Something else you talk about is something that has come up many times on our show. Uh, the Viking landers, those pioneering still amazing uh, landings on Mars back in the mid-1970s, which uh, attempted to detect life. And of course, there were what a lot of people, most people still say, were ambiguous results from at least one of those experiments on both of the landers. 
what went wrong there? I mean, yeah, we didn't understand enough about Mars, right? We didn't know that the surface is covered in, in perchlorates, but would it have been possible to do that experiment in a different way, if not in the mid-1970s, then now where you could have used assembly theory to, to help determine whether something was kicking around on Mars? Yeah, so um, let me answer the question first of all. I think NASA did it right, actually. They made a really good mistake. Hmm. It was a really good mistake to make, which is to say, look, we're going to look for metabolic evidence. We're going to think about the chemistry of Mars, and we'll go. So the fact we're arguing about whether life is there or not now is just to do with the technology we sent there at the time. It was always going to be ambiguous. Unless a Martian got up and actually hit the Verlander with, you know, <laughs> with a Martian axe, we would still be arguing today because we just didn't yet have really the correct framework. Now, what I would do is I'll take one minute, if I may, to kind of explain the theoretical framework that doesn't exist yet. If we take um, particle physics, when people are looking at the Higgs boson, this is the way the framework I look at it. So to basically predict the Higgs boson, you needed to we need to have a theory of stuff, a theory of matter. So we have a theory, these particles, that's called the standard model. Now with that standard model, we can then make a simulation of when those particles are likely to be seen. So we've got, a we've got a theory, then a model, then a simulation. With a simulation, we get an energy range. So we now can build a machine. And we do is we bombard particles together and we look for evidence of that energy. So for the Higgs is about 128.3 giga electron volts. Smash things together, find something in this range in your atmosphere smasher, you have found evidence of the Higgs and therefore gravity. So let's apply this to our thing here. What is life? We don't know. It's DNA, it's peptides, it's lipids, it's life is me, blue eye, whatever. And you'll say, okay, if life is about complexity or generating objects of more degrees of freedom than can be explained by non-causal based structures, that's our theory. And we say, okay, let's make a system, a model. Let's randomly mix all the molecules together. We get the rough idea where to search, threshold, high up. Now we then make a detection system a mass spectrometer to weigh the molecules. And then we go to either the lab where we're trying to make life in my lab right now or to Mars. And we simply do that. So that was a very long winded way of saying if we go back to Mars with a suitable mass spectrometer that NASA has at Goddard right now, they could do the experiment in a year, two years, whatever it is, take to Mars, and they would be able to, to at least have a go at detecting those molecules. And if they did detect a molecule with an MA greater than 15, we will know that either Mars was alive in the past or had been contaminated by humans with life or that mm. some technologies on Mars are making complex molecules. Either of those things would be really fascinating. And then if it was thought to be contamination, we could fingerprint that and rule it out. So that's what I think we are going to do in our lifetime in the next few years. And there's existing kit on Mars a Mars plan, a kit plan to go to Titan that may indeed be able to do these type of experiments. And so NASA didn't go wrong. They were just naive. They didn't have a framework. But now, thanks to what we've done together with NASA's help and other colleagues, we now have a framework. We understand what life does. We have a model for it. We have a detection system. Let's go. Lee, thank you for more than satisfying all my expectations for this conversation. It has been absolutely delightful to talk with you. And I do wish you the greatest of continued success. Uh, I suspect from the sound of it, we may have more to talk about in the future. Thank you. I very much hope so. Thanks for having me on. Lee Cronin is Regius Professor of Chemistry at the University of Glasgow, where he leads the Cronin Group. 
You'll find the paper about assembly theory and much more of my conversation with Lee on this week's episode page at planetary.org radio. Love Saturn and its rings? Then you have another reason to hear the deluxe version of the show. Planetary Society editor Ray Pauletta has collected a dozen of the best images of that world's rings. We talk about them online. I'll be right back with Bruce and What's Up. This is Planetary Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Davis, Editorial Director for the Planetary Society. Did you know there are more than 20 planetary science missions exploring our solar system? That means a lot of news happens in any given week. Here's how to keep up with it all. The downlink is our new roundup of planetary exploration headlines. It connects you to the details when you want to dive deeper. From Mercury to interstellar space, we'll catch you up on what you might have missed. That's the downlink every Friday at planetary.org. Bill Nye, the planetary guy here. The threat of a deadly asteroid impact is real. The answer to avoiding it? Science. And you. It's the only large-scale natural disaster that could one day be prevented. The Society is getting ready to award its next round of Shoemaker Near-Earth Object Grants to talented astronomers around the world. You can learn more about this opportunity and our other work at planetary.org neo. We're just trying to save the world. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society, Bruce Betts. Also, the guy who runs our Shoemaker Neo Grant program, and uh, I don't know how many of you out there caught it, but we had a great uh, live webinar on uh, Saturday, last Saturday, to uh, update everybody on uh, our planetary defense activities, including Shoemaker Neo. Casey Dreyer and uh, Tim Sparr, the former head of the Minor Planet Center, joined us. Uh, you, you are marvelous. Well, thank you. You always are marvelous. Uh, yeah, it was good reviewing... Uh, what we do in planetary defense for protecting the world from asteroid impact, along with a whole lot of other people in the world, talked about all sorts of things, thanks to you, Matt, including our Shoemaker Neo grants, which go to avid amateurs and professionals who upgrade their telescope facilities using our grants. A lot of you probably heard Alessandro and, uh, Nastasi and uh, Russ Turkey. You want to see them and the other four uh, winners of grants, awardees in the last round, the 2019 round. They are also, they have little videos that they produce that we uh, put in the webinar and uh, they, they came up pretty well. It was fun to watch. So what's up there other than thousands of near-Earth objects we need to uh, watch out for? <laughs> Most of what you can't see, but what you can see are some nice bright planets. I'm excited about Venus coming up in the evening west shortly after sunset, looking super bright. But what I'm excited about is Mars that's been hanging out in the west for a while, and Venus will be snuggling on July 12th, closer than a full moon. And speaking of the moon... They'll also have a crescent moon there July 12th. But in the meantime, Mars is headed down, Venus is headed up. Venus is over 100 times brighter than Mars right now. Middle of the night, Saturn and Jupiter rising, Jupiter much brighter, Saturn yellowish rising in the east in the middle of the night, up high in the south in the pre-dawn. We move on to this week in space history. A lot of stuff happened this week. Uh, for example, 1997, Mars Pathfinder landed successfully on Mars. 2005, uh, Deep Impact slammed its big 800-kilogram copper impactor into a comet. Five years ago, 2016, Juno started orbiting Jupiter and given us uh, great data from Jupiter. 
All right, we move on to... Sorry about your ears, everybody wearing headphones. Sorry. The first spacewalk, of course, done by cosmonaut Alexei Leonov. The Soviet Union and other Eastern Bloc countries put out stamps to commemorate this. But at the time, the Soviet Union did not publish details of what the Voskhod spacecraft looked like. So the stamps are actually mildly <laughs> hilarious. They just made up spacecraft images. You can check out Leonov stamps and you'll find them. I mean, you know, they look like some kind of sci-fi thing, but not like the Voskhod. So if I wanted to see that those stamps, uh, you have a suggestion on what to Google? Uh, yeah, something like uh, Leonov USSR stamp 1965, or I believe it's linked from his Wikipedia page, the Soviet Union one that I find most amusing. And I'm assuming you can also uh, put a link from our show page. We'll do that. We'll definitely do that. <laughs> Go to planetary.org slash radio if you want to catch uh, the link there. I'm going to check that out. That that's just sounds wonderful. We're uh, ready to go on to the contest. I asked you, after the sun, what star has the largest angular diameter as seen from Earth? How do we do, Matt? Here is the rhyming response from Gene Lewin in the state of Washington. We know as far as angles go, triangles all have three. And to determine a star's diameter, we use interferometry. Measured at two different points along Earth's elliptic path, R. Doradus, at about 57 MAS, is the largest when you do the math. Is that interferometry? I love the, love the poem, but... I was just taken away by the rhyme. I... <laughs> and MAS, what are we talking about there? Millet arc seconds. So... 360 degrees across the sky in the full circle, and then break that into arc minutes, 60 arc minutes per degree, 60 arc seconds per arc minute. And this is a whopping, um, I've got it in arc seconds, which is 0 0.057 arc seconds. That would do it. 57 milli arc seconds. Yeah, it's still not very wide. You're not going to go out and go, whoa, look at that wide star up in the sky. <laughs> but maybe someone, people mention it, but what blows my mind is the star is so big, it's 178 light years away, and it's still the biggest angle on the sky of a star besides the sun, of course. Our winner is Robert Laporta, who is a past winner, but it has been going on three years since he uh, got chosen by random.org. Thank you very much, Robert. Uh, we are going to be sending you a hardcover copy of uh, Carbon, the first winner of that great book, Carbon, One Adam's Odyssey by John Barnett. Here's your question. Who was the first married couple to fly in space together? To fly to, to space together and in space. I think they're the only married couple that's flown in space together. People can correct me if I'm wrong, but I do want the first married couple to fly in space together. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. I cannot remember the names, but I do remember a random space fact about them. Well, we'll find out in two weeks, everybody, because <laughs> <laughs> you have until... July 7, 2021. That'll be Wednesday, July 7 at 8 a.m. Pacific time uh, to get us this answer and uh, maybe win yourself a planetary radio T-shirt, which you will look stunning in. We can state this as a matter of fact. <laughs> this is so true. 
All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about dolphins because they're just so darn cute. We're talking the marine mammal, not the fish. Thank you, and good night. I always wanted one when I was growing up. I wanted one in the pool because I just thought that would be the greatest thing in the world. I would just go out and swim around and play ball. Uh, and when he got tired of me, he'd just, you know, poke me and I'd get out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is a beautiful vision. Uh, I'd like to think that happened for you. <laughs> He's Bruce Betts having that vision right now. He's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, and he joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its lively members. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. <laughs>